0: Welcome back. It's Swing Pass Wednesday, February 23rd. I'm Adam Ruffner, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Daniel Cohen. Daniel, we've got a bunch of news again today. The schedule dropped for the 2022 AUDL season. Championship weekend announcement coming back to Madison, Wisconsin. There's been a bunch of signings around the league. It really feels like we're kind of in that event horizon area where we're just going to get pulled right into the season from here, despite being a good eight-plus weeks out uh, from the opening (laughs) poll on April 29th, 2022. What are your thoughts? Schedule is out. I'm
1: excited. Yeah, this is kind of the... I don't know, another milestone in the off season, obviously just ramping up towards the new season. You got to have a schedule to do that. Um, and yeah, I'm loving what I'm seeing. I, I It's like a, a nice reminder about the divisional realignment and the new teams out West, just like seeing how everything fits together. And I'm super excited for championship weekend to return to Madison because they've hosted in 2016 and 2018 I have not been to a Madison Championship weekend before. The only AUDL event I went to in Madison was the All-Star Game in 2019. So I've heard great things. It has been sufficiently hyped. So I'm
0: excited. Now, it's back
1: in the Midwest.
0: Now, hold on a second. There's a certain uh, curse that you have at Breeze Stevens, uh, the Cohen's curse, where I believe yes. every time you've shown up, To a Madison Radicals home game, they've lost, correct? They have. That is 0 4? That is correct. 0 5. Yeah,
1: either either 0 3 or 0 4. And I'm pretty sure I only did I. No, I did go to the home opener last year. Most of those games came in 2019. So, you know, this is all in the era that Madison has begun to lose at home, whereas before that just wasn't a thing. Um, So yeah, I mean, obviously it it might have to be a further discussion with uh, Coach Tim DeBile on whether or not I attend Championship Weekend if the Radicals are in fact in it. Um, But
0: we can can talk more about that later. For now, I'm planning on going. I'll I'll leave it at that. Daniel's uh, bad juju aside, we will be talking about Championship (laughs) Weekend in Madison in a bit. But I think first we're going to hit on some league news. More signings from uh, playoff teams, potential playoff teams in 2022. Let's start in the central with the Chicago Union. Uh, just a couple hours before we started taping today, they announced the return of a quartet in Paul Arters, Charlie First, Tim Schock, and Jeremy Burl, all former members of the Union in 2021 during their championship weekend run. Uh, what do you think of this signing announcement from the union it's a nice crop uh
1: obviously Paul Arders is kind of the headliner of this group like he is basically I mean if he's not a star in this league right now he's basically a star in this league he was he came in I mean he was a rookie last year and he came in as kind of this no-name guy with some club experience but not really anything beyond that and I just the way he fit into that offense starting in I believe it was their second game in week two that he made his debut. Um, He like, I don't know. There were a lot of games where he felt like the key piece to that offense ahead of Pablo ahead of Ross Barker. He just brought so much versatility. And he's one of those hybrids that super comfortable with a disc in his hands and really willing to take those deep shots. But also just like he has this like calm, cool, collected approach to his game where it feels like he... I don't know, kind of like how Keegan North was with the Alley Cats and even last year some Arders sort of like maintained this aggressiveness by making everything look smooth at the same time. Uh so Arders I'm I'm the most excited for to see back in that offense, but Jeremy Burrell, Charlie First, both captains in 2021. And nice to get that leadership back and Burrell is a great role player on offense. First was a starting D-liner for them. And then Tim Shock, I think he Made a huge, huge impact as far as like defensive rookies go for Chicago. He had that Callahan uh, off of the hand block against Indianapolis and Indy. He had like the game ceiling block against Minnesota in the playoff game to send them to championship weekend. He was sort of their primary D-line quarterback when Peter Graffi and Kurt Gibson were not playing on that D-line. So very capable with the disc in his hands and really a a solid handler defender that just has really good instincts. So overall, very excited about this group. They're continuing to sort of regain and rebuild this core
0: in Chicago. And I think one of the things, and you kind of hit on it right there at the end, core, the Chicago franchise has not really had a stable core now for the past four or five years in this kind of returning yeah. of most of their roster from their 2021 semifinals push I think is really encouraging for them because that stability in a division like the Central is really going to play out well for them into the postseason as you can see even last year with their kind of uh, moxie that they showed in that 5-0 run to close out the playoff game against Minnesota. For sure. And I just thinking back to like, as recently as
1: 2018, you know, that team was like Pavel, Ross, and Kurt Gibson, and then like no depth beyond those guys. So you're right, they haven't really had much of a deep core in the recent past, but it feels like they're continuing to build towards that consistency. So it's, um, yeah, I mean,
0: I, I think it just bodes well for their chances of continuing to compete in the Central. And I definitely concur with all of your assessments of the four players we mentioned, but I kind of want to zero back in on Paul Arters for a second because please do as a rookie in 2021, he wasn't just one of the better players on the union. He was probably the most efficient high usage player in the AUDL. Uh, He had a 70 or 67% OF rating, meaning the union scored on 67% of the possessions he was a part of. Uh, just yeah. <laughs> a kind of bewildering figure. It, it, it. One of the things that's kind of occurring to me as we look more and more into these deeper stats is that OF almost correlates to kind of like a, a shooting percentage a little bit in like basketball in that like 50 is kind of a good number. When you start getting up into 60s, you're really starting to get into elite territory. You're kind of talking about like true scorers and stuff, people who are used a lot around the end zone in very specific O-line situations and very good teams, right? It's kind of similar to yeah, like, well, uh, 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 an interior scorer in the NBA, you know, like a Giannis or somebody, somebody who gets a lot of baskets at the rim. But... Sure, I mean, it, for, added, for
1: added context real quick, if you look at team offensive efficiency, just looking at their O-line, you know, the best team ever for a single season was chicago this past year and they converted on 64.6 percent of their o-line possessions so that's like the best mark in history and paul arters when he's on the field is three percent better than that so just to give it some team context
0: and almost two percentage points better than number two uh, among players at 200 plus possessions anders jung's uh, who was the Rookie of the Year in 2021. So it really kind of shows Arter's potential even going into year two. It's like if that was his rookie season, he could get even better with a firmer understanding of the O-line and everything that the union are trying to run. He just kind got dropped in and was one of the most <laughs> right. uh, vertically potent downfield sort of strikers in the league. You know, he he completed 12 hucks in nine games like he would have been among the league leaders had he played, you know, in all, I believe, 14 Chicago games. Uh, he's just one of those guys who and we always talk about on the show, the vertical dimension of the field, he is a vertical player, like orders kind of only exists as both a thrower and a receiver to gain yardage. He had 181 Mm -hmm. completions. And nearly 3,500 total yards in nine games. Like that is just ridiculous kinds of production. Like a, we've talked about it off air, but like a yards per attempt number. If you wanted to calculate that for like an arters, like he would just yeah. be off the charts. Super
1: high and yards per touch. Same, same. thing. I, yeah. I love the way his game particularly complimented Ross Barker's because they're Absolutely. both hybrids but in totally different ways, like Ross Barker, much more of a downfield receiving hybrid with throws. Arters, I think is more of that, like, you know, that, that transition from the backfield to getting the disc downfield. Like he is that, that glue piece kind of in the middle. Um, and then I think overall more comfortable in the backfield than he is downfield, but that's not to say he didn't he wasn't on the receiving end of plenty of hucks too. And then both those guys, because of the comfortability with the disc in their hands, like most hybrids, that just ups the red zone efficiency that much more. And I think they were both a big reason why Chicago was so efficient in the red zone, is they have these guys that are just like very comfortable with the disc, don't need a ton of touches, but like they're there if Pavel needs to get the disc out to one of them. Um, either as scorers or throwers. So, really, just like a lot of nice pieces fitting together in that offense.
0: Uh, a lot of complimentary pieces, which is great to see. That's an absolutely great point that you bring up. And I just want to add on to it. I think arters adds another creative thrower to their offense. You know, I think they have a lot of good system throwers in addition to Pavel. Pavel, obviously, is a creative thrower. Um, but they don't necessarily, or in years past, haven't necessarily had that, that other thrower who could go out and make some pretty audacious hucks or or throws over the top. And like you said a, a moment ago, Arters just kind of has that chillness, that that like swagger yeah. almost where he'll just he does. he'll blitz under, be catching the disc at full speed, he'll turn on a dime and just launch a 60-yard laser in stride to Barker Downfield or something. And Union haven't had that and uh, before. And very few teams, I think, the league over have that kind of option that Arters provides a Union offense. And I definitely think he was a major component to, like you said a moment ago, that record-setting offensive efficiency in 2021. Yeah. And just thinking about taking the pressure off of
1: Pavel, where Pavel's been their main thrower for the past you know, every season he's been in the league, uh, just having another guy that can really stretch the field vertically with his throws is so important to every offense. You know, having multiple options that can do that. So love that Paul Arders is back. Couldn't be more excited.
0: So with this batch of signings, Chicago brings back virtually their entire starting O-line. Sans, Keegan North, and Pat Shrywise. Shrywise being obviously... A really unheralded part, I think, of the successes of that Chicago O line in 2021. Can Chicago sustain that offensive efficiency in 2022? Do they need someone urgently to fill that Trywise role? Or do you expect the pieces as they've announced with the return of Giannis and Barker and Shanahan and now Arters and Burl? Do you think that core can sustain the level that they had last year? during their final four push? It's a good question because I
1: kind of feel like they're due for some regression, but at the same time, the league as a whole is trending towards more efficient offense. So it's also hard because like Pat Trywise is such one of those (laughs) offensive efficiency type guys uh, in the way he fit in with that offense, just like super limiting on turnovers uh, always felt like he was in the right spot and always was an outlet for that backfield. So not having that it's, it's going to be tough. I also don't know if Nico Lake is coming back because he was another one of those complimentary handler pieces. Um, so we'll see. Cause uh, yeah, Arters doesn't really play in the backfield so much. So I am kind of wondering who their go-to second handler will be with Pavel. Cause even Keegan spent a bit of time back there last year. Um to answer your question, I like they have they have most of their core, but I I do feel like the losses of Shrewise North and if they lost Lake as well, I think that'll dip their number a little bit. Also just the fact that they, they did have this record setting efficiency last season. I just think it's hard to repeat that. But I mean they're they're definitely in good shape heading into the season.
0: I think with Arders, Barker balancing out with Giannis and Shanahan and Burl like the the pieces you need are just kind of complementary to those right like those are yeah those are pieces that will get it done for you particularly with Giannis and Arders and Barker um it it doesn't feel like they need to urgently fill and yet it it can be so precarious right we kind of saw it with Madison I mean Look at what happened when they lost a couple pieces after 2018 when they previously had the highest offensive efficiency season ever. Mm-hmm. Uh until that point. And then they lose a couple pieces going into 2019 and 2021. And they've been middle of the pack ever since, even though it's the same system, relatively some of the same pieces. Uh, you know, there's kind of an alchemy, I think, to building O-lines, particularly at the pro level where you know, you you tinker a little bit with a couple of the pieces, and all the rhythm can potentially fall apart. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Chicago, you know, as we keep saying, can sustain that uh, great yeah, offense. For sure, sport. and I,
1: yeah, I feel like you see it all the time, just with like early season tinkering with lineups, just trying to get that optimal O line. Yeah, I agree. It could just be a, a player or two here or there that needs switching up, and and that can drastically change things. So. It is tough. I mean, even though like scoring wise, wise, Keegan North, like they weren't putting up huge numbers all season. I still felt like they they played their roles well, generally. So we'll see
0: who steps up. wise was out there balling in the semifinal. He was making plays. He had a great game. Yeah, he did. Won't go quietly into the night. Uh, but moving on from Chicago's <laughs> offseason news, we've kind of got a theme to these next four signings. It's it's big boy time. Where, what are we calling this? These are big boy four, time. I like that. Yeah. Four dudes are all, I think, six, four <laughs> plus uh, kind of spanning yeah. across the divisions. Uh, I'll leave it up to you. It's it's Trevor Purdy, Ethan Pollock, Tanner Johnson and CJ Colicchio. W- where do you want to start? Let's start with Purdy. Uh,
1: I believe when we talked about we we talked about it on a episode a while back of like different teams needs. And I think San Diego came up and they're, they're such a sound team from top to bottom of their roster. But one thing I, I remember noting was the absence of that, like true imposing deep defender, which they had in Trevor Purdy in previous seasons, but not having him last season, I feel like that that was the missing piece for them. And even in Purdy's one game that he played, uh, against LA that was when Nethercutt also made his debut it's just like a one game rental of Trevor Purdy um he recorded like two blocks and three goals just in one game alone it's it's like the the end of quarter stuff obviously is super helpful to have a 6-6 guy you know getting on the other end of anything that's chucked up to the end zone but yeah just the the idea of like having that last back defender who's always lurking sort of as a safety and and just ready for those big throws to go up. I think Trevor Purdy uh, has a lot of uh, ability that he can add to that defense. Uh, Also from a double team standpoint, you know, putting a giant on the double team, like we saw in that 2019 uh, semifinal game against Dallas, he had that huge hand block, like right on the goal line. Um, Stuff like that, that, you know, you can't teach tall. And Trevor (laughs) Purdy
0: has that for San Diego. Yeah, I think all the guys we're about to talk about can fall into that category. Um, (laughs) You're absolutely right with Purdy, I think, and especially with San Diego. They know how to use him well. Uh, They put him in positions where his height is just kind of an unsolvable problem. As you say, at the end of quarters, in double-team stunt traps, uh, it, it feels like the growlers, and credit to the coaching staff of Kevin Stewart and Kayla Helton, like they... It feels like they will know how to implement him well, and it just feels like a growler's defense that's been slowly getting deeper and kind of more ferocious the past couple seasons now adds another complementary piece that they can just sort of tinker with and deploy when they need to. I-, I think it's one of those really great signings that you know smart teams that have now made two straight championship weekend appearances do in the offseason, right?
1: yeah and it's also like when you when you look at them, how they were against New York, not to say that their their deep defense was necessarily a problem the whole game, but you know who like you need someone to match up on Ben Yacht on Henry Fisher at championship weekend, and you know, I think Stephen Milardovich was probably their go to big defender last season. he was only like six two, maybe six three um so yeah, just like having more height and and like you said, knowing. Exactly how to use it. And it's not like Purdy's block numbers for his career are that huge, but it doesn't like I think he averages about one block per game, uh, which is solid over, you know, around 50 games for his career. But just like having him back there as like a a deterrent for opposing offenses um, and buzzer beater situations, I I think that's it's going to be huge.
0: It's one of those things where he might not have a huge number of blocks, but they feel very impactful when you go and watch the film. Like you're yeah. saying, they're often at yeah. the ends of quarters. Same with his goal numbers; it's like he's scoring at the end of a buzzer beater situation, which is effectively <laughs> right. giving them a break. If it's not outright a break because he's playing D line, it is because of their their mini breaks, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and and that just feels invaluable we've talked about that before with like the value of Jeff Babbitt on New York when you can just have a player go out there and win you end of quarter situations or even with uh, roller pulls that the growlers like to use and kind of like stunt certain O-line possessions uh, pretty just feels like an invaluable piece but and I feel like real quick in 2019 I feel like
1: buzzer beaters were such a big part of not I mean obviously like you can't only point to buzzer beaters for their success, but they were one of the better buzzer beater teams in twenty nineteen well, right? because Absolutely. of birdie like i I remember you know three or four that he came
0: down with. They and, were the cardiac you know, from like um they were like the cardiac good. team that year they had a few situations yeah. with buzzer beaters and deflected goals at the end of overtime and whatnot like
1: yeah, 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 exactly, and I feel like one. that was. Yeah, I don't think of them as doing much of that at all in 2021. I would point to Purdy as a big reason why. So I'm excited for them to
0: get that buzzer beater identity back. All right, so three left to choose from. I'll talk about Tanner Johnson. Let's go to Tanner Johnson. Uh, Boston Glory announcing the return of their kind of, I think, cornerstone piece going into the 2021 season, but... He got injured at the end of their first game. uh, Didn't return to action for about eight weeks. uh, Only ended up playing four games for the glory during their inaugural season. But when he was on the field, he looked like one of the five best players on the field for either team. Right? Like he, he just has that look. He plays like that. That's the kind of expectation he came in to the Boston scene with. Um, I'm really excited to see a full season from Tanner Johnson. And it's one of the reasons why I think Glory might be one of the true dark horse contenders in the East, if not the league as a whole. Um, he just feels like when he's fully healthy, he can play at an MVP like level. And I know this is going to be a bit of a stretch, and all due respect to the two time reigning MVP, if there is a player who can emulate a Ben Yacht like offensive production, and kind of command this sort of downfield respect as both a thrower and receiver. I don't know that there's anyone better equipped than Tanner Johnson, right? Yeah, I I don't Call think that's crazy. a stretch at all. I
1: I don't <laughs> think it's a stretch. And I I don't even necessarily view him as like a dominant downfield presence. I mean, obviously yeah, like it, he is when he needs to be, Daniel. but the difference Daniel. between his
0: what you got to go watch his college highlights or something no no, no i know i know
1: it, i my point my point is yet. a
0: better my point
1: is he has more versatility okay. than ben Yacht. you don't see ben Yacht hanging out in the backfield with the handlers you know he is he is definitely a cutter even though he has throws like maybe you put him in the hybrid category that's that you know difference between like a backfield hybrid and a downfield hybrid sure he has throws but Tanner Johnson just has the ability to like totally run an offense from the backfield at 6 foot 4, pair him up with Ben Sudok and watch them work. Like every game I saw him in last season, he just felt like he could command the field from wherever and having that good of a deep threat that can also just play in the backfield and like in the red zone alone, like that is such a invaluable piece to have. Um, I, I really think Tanner Johnson has one of the best skill sets in the league. And I like, do I take him over Ben Yacht in a fantasy draft? Maybe. Maybe I do.
0: OK, now you're going out in a limb. <laughs> uh, I Although I will say Ben Yacht was 17th in yards per game in 2021. Tanner Johnson was 10th, uh, obviously only in four games compared to Ben Yacht doing it over 15. <laughs> That's the kind of consistency you expect from the MVP. But, you know, it bears out that Tanner Johnson is on that level. Similarly, uh, he's averaging over five scores a game. uh, Tanner Johnson was in 2021. It just it feels like going into second year, having kind of cut their teeth a bit in that brutal Atlantic schedule in 2021, getting sort of like familiar with New York and D.C., they're not going to be fun to play (laughs) and (laughs) no. And I think that they have the the inside track on that third, if not second playoff bid in the East.
1: If, if Tanner stays healthy, I agree with you. I mean, in the four games he played, they either destroyed Pittsburgh or they lost by one to Raleigh and New York. So like this is a team that's going to be extremely competitive against New York, against DC you know obviously there's that one the one DC game where they they got destroyed and that was really Blew just, the roof I felt, off I felt like that was more DC just <laughs> clicking everywhere than yes. Boston being not good but Absolutely. also Tanner wasn't playing that game um but yeah I don't know it it feels weird to to think of one player as having such a dramatic impact on the team's wins but but he is one of those guys. Like He's absolutely an MVP candidate if he can stay healthy all year.
0: We kind of glossed over it at the time, but man, week 10, Boston only loses to the Flyers by one goal. How different does the whole season look if Boston pulls off that (laughs) win and the Flyers drop to five regular season losses as opposed to four?
1: Yeah, I mean, I still think I think they still would have been the four seed in the playoffs, right? Like, I guess well, Boston... But then you
0: then Boston. you go to Boston, had that reschedule against the Empire after the rest of the regular season ended, and that game yeah, almost went yeah. to overtime. If Boston right. has a little bit more motivation in that matchup, as opposed to New York, who is fighting for a home playoffs game, uh, that... Looks a lot different, and then I don't yeah. know how it necessarily bears out in like the head-to-head and everything. I guess the Flyers did beat Boston earlier in the series, but then it would be tied. Yeah, up. they beat them by they beat them by three, I think. So it's technically, they would have been just, a But saying, yes. like that yeah, one game ends. flips one goal differently the other way, and it's a radically different 2021 campaign.
1: Yeah. I agree. And I feel like, you know, all the teams that played Raleigh to within a goal last year, either beating them by a goal or losing them by a goal. I felt like, you know, that was the the DC, New York, Atlanta crew, you know, it was those Atlantic playoff teams. But yeah, then Boston did it with Tanner Johnson healthy in the lineup. It felt like, you know, obviously we're we're sort of extrapolating over the four games we saw of Boston with Tanner Johnson, but you know, what we have to go off of, it, it feels like they are right up there skill level wise. And throughout the season, you know, they they averaged the second most points per game last year behind only Raleigh, I believe. Largely um, with obviously
0: arguably their best player in Tanner. <laughs> right.
1: So obviously, you know, we've pointed to, to defense as the, the spot where they could grow uh, probably the most. Um, but yeah, I mean, just having this guy on the offense is just going to make their offense that much more efficient. I expect a lot of competitive games with Boston this season.
0: If Orion Cable can continue to kind of switch out with Tanner Johnson as he like comes under, that's just gonna be an unsolvable offensive duo. They're they're a fun offense. I mean, just Sadoke and
1: Halkyard Also, then they got a lot of these role players that are. I, I, their offense felt like a very comfortable complimentary offense for a lot of the year and again that was without tanner so
0: we'll see i i'm just hopeful that he's healthy and and can stay healthy this season all right two more on our bigs list uh which one do you want to take next uh we can talk uh cj colicchio of pittsburgh
1: he re-signed with the thunderbirds this is a guy that like I I didn't know much about him coming into the season. I knew he'd bounced around a little bit in prior ADL seasons, and Pittsburgh as a team, I was just like, okay, twenty nineteen, it was the the Shepherd Edmonds show. Like they kind of just had those two guys on offense, and that was it, and it, it worked really well for them. So I expected more of the same in twenty twenty one, but then they turned into a big three, adding CJ Colicchio, who I believe he's six six something like that. He's Wait, up there. He's he's kind of like a like a Ben Yacht type player um in that he he's very strictly a cutter like he's not really in the backfield ever, but he does have some throws and like he he's willing to put the disc deep. Um I felt like he he fit in surprisingly well to that offense considering they had such a different offensive identity in 2019, but CJ really like stuffed the <laughs> stat sheet last season. 30 assists, 43 goals, 15 blocks. Uh, I mean, a I lot can, of
0: those were... If I oh, can interject for one second and compare him to Ben Yacht with his stats, uh, he's yeah, one of three players that have 30-plus assists, 30-plus goals, and 10-plus blocks. Him, Ben Yacht, and the aforementioned Tanner Halkyard.
1: Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, obviously, good statistically...
0: Company. Very,
1: very good company, uh, just a really productive season. I mean, obviously you look at the completion percentage numbers and they weren't weren't quite probably where he wanted them at 88%. But then again, Ben Yacht's always down like around 90% too. So very similar play styles. And obviously they're both big guys that do a lot of damage in the deep space. But I always liked, I liked his throws that he would get, you know, like on underneath cuts that like that nice high release backhand he has. Uh, sort of a, a underratedly versatile thrower. Um, for for the role he plays in that offense. So I, I don't know. I mean, they it's just another, another guy that they can sort of merge into this core of offensive stars that Pittsburgh still continues to have.
0: I totally agree with you when he uses his height on his throws, especially in the red zone. It just feels a little yeah. bit unfair. And if those turnover numbers <laughs> can just depreciate a little bit, it really feels like him and Shepard kind of become an unsolvable question near the end zone. If they just can possess the disc. Um, I mean, he closed out the season with 10 goals, three blocks and 400 plus receiving yards against Atlanta a week before that assists, two goals, two blocks against New York, you know uh, obviously the the five turnovers across those two games, a little bit problematic, but with Pittsburgh, they, they had to be kind of shooters last year. Like that's how they stay competitive. So if they can just yeah. get like a little bit more balance on their offensive lineup, it really feels like with Calicchio and Shepard, they have pieces, especially now in the central, to really at least challenge teams downfield to make decisions about who they kind of want to take away because they're not going to be able to take away both.
1: Yeah, and there's not there's not a ton of height in the central, like, like really big guys. I mean, Chicago had Swanson and Goff. Uh, Madison, I don't really know who their tallest guy is. Wom, Jacob Wom. Wom, and what is he, like 6'3"-ish? He's 6'5", I think. He's a big kid. Is he? Okay, underratedly big. Um, Anyway, I don't know. I feel like I could see CJ having more success in the Central Division. I mean, obviously, Pittsburgh as a whole had a lot more success in the Central in 2019. But, um, yeah, I could see just defenses struggling to contain him even more so than last year.
0: And then finally in our big boys list, uh, we have the return of Ethan Pollock uh, re-signing with the Austin soul. He comes back, did not play with the team in 2021, but a long time veteran uh, from 2016, I believe. Yeah. 2016 through 2019 with the team. I, I believe he was the franchise goal leader and still is correct. Was me he? if I'm wrong there. I don't know. Uh, it's either him quick. or Kyle Henke. Uh, he came into the league and scored 39 goals in 2016 for the soul was kind of their like number one target during their inaugural season. And uh, just at six foot seven is going to provide, you know, we've talked about the the punchy soul offense before with yet another option. And they could pen- potentially spell him on defense and also with his size, as we've kind of talked about throughout this section, use him in end of quarter situations to essentially win jump balls or, deny opposing offenses, a shot at a Hail Mary. Um, it just, again, it feels like one of those signings that is just a check mark in a box that goes, good teams make these kinds of acquisitions, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. He is second all-time in goals second. for the Austin Soul. First is Andrew Walsh with 99 goals. Wow, Pollock is, walsh claw. Pollock is Walsh-Claw with 99. Pollock is literally right behind him at 98 goals. So well, that, the Chase I, is on. I, I, the Chase is on. I think Walsh is retired, but you never know with what the Solar Building. Like this is just it's the recent the most recent signing for a team that has just they've I feel like they've loaded up so much more this off than last off They really like had a a very underratedly deep core last year and just another year in the system for those guys, adding back a, a big deep threat that just really opens up everything for that offense. Like I think their biggest cutter last year was probably Valsaraj at six, three, but Pollock is, I think he's listed at six, seven. Is that right? Yep. And Henke is another, you know, six, three guy. Like they they've gotten big and I, I didn't think of them as a really big team last year. So I just, I like the possibilities that opens up for any offense. And Pollock is obviously like a, a very proven veteran at this point so it's great to see him back i'm excited
0: for austin so one one kind of interesting wrinkle to all this is that we've been hyping up the soul but there are only two playoff spots in the south division in 2022 Um, and with carolina and atlanta now moving back to their traditional alignment in the south division along with the two teams from texas and dallas and austin and the Tampa Bay Cannons, As much as we can talk about the the soul and how much these additions are good, and we'll talk about it more in a second with the schedule and some of their interdivisional games, uh, at one point, is there kind of an uphill battle for the soul simply in the fact that they got to leapfrog either the reigning champion Carolina Flyers or the also kind of ascendant Atlanta Hustle who were last you know, ousted by the New York Empire on a last-second buzzer-beater Hail Mary. Uh, <laughs> it feels like yeah. the soul for as good as they, they've they gotten in the offseason and all these additions, they still have a really uphill battle to get to a playoff spot in 2022.
1: For sure. And it definitely might not happen for them this year, but I definitely think they're going to at least push it, probably Atlanta. I mean, Carolina still feels like a lock for Ooh. one of the playoff spots but i i think they will push atlanta for that second spot and cool. it's going to be interesting late in the season
0: i'm not doubting that and we'll get to that more when we talk about the schedule and <laughs> rivalries here in a second i'm just saying like they, they they sort of have an institutional disadvantage here because every other division with just the amount of teams has 3 playoff bids whereas the south because there's only 5 teams they've got 2 and while austin yep. feels like a playoff team in every sense of the word, they've got to leapfrog two of essentially the best six teams from last season.
1: Yeah, you know. well, and and technically they still need to
0: leapfrog Dallas, who who did yep. beat them yep. to a playoff spot last season. I know, and um, I was just about to say I'm discrediting <laughs> Dallas really hard here, um, but they've <laughs> they've right. obviously signed back on captains, and and just yesterday announced the return of Thomas Slack. Uh, Dallas is again a, a team that historically does not lose much and and will be gunning again for their fifth straight playoff appearance Um, yeah i think it's it's easy to get on the austin soul hype train for sure
1: with with the reversal we saw in the historic austin dallas rivalry last season and the moves they're making this year and including the you know general movement from some dallas guys towards austin i i i'm pretty confident they'll finish better than dallas this year but You're right. I mean, Atlanta's still there. Atlanta did lose Antoine, but they also added those two playmakers from Tampa Bay. So we'll see what happens. I I think it could definitely come down to their last uh, meeting of the season. Um, You know, we've we talked a bit about we talked a bit about it off air, but the the Atlanta Austin rivalry is kind of an
0: underrated one in years past. I've got a whole thing about it later. I (laughs) It's, it's been such a good undercard since 2016. Yeah. Uh, they've just kind of always been neck and neck, super highlight-filled battles. But anyways, let's let's first transition into, holy cow, we have a whole league schedule now. Uh, again, the season starts on April 29th. It's a Friday night. Uh, the first game we get is Carolina Flyers versus Atlanta Hustle. Uh, it's hard to think of a better just opening slate rivalry. Both teams kind of always determine each other's playoff fate, uh, battle than Carolina Atlanta, right? Like it Yeah. To see the reigning champions I, right away get challenged by a hustle team once again looking to kind of put their flag on top of the Flyers, uh, as they did in week one last year. Uh yep. It it, it I, I'm I so repeat. excited already. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I want to repeat of that game. That remember that game was that was when the Flyers started off with just four goals in the first half. Yeah, uh, Atlanta just the locked zone. them down from the get go, and then second half, Flyers just picked it up, and ultimately Atlanta went back to the zone in overtime to seal that win. But that was such a fun. I mean, I feel like there were a lot of fun games like that. Uh, last year's opening weekend because the new york dc game was also opening weekend last year
0: too there's a lot of buzzer beaters
1: yeah that was the the jack williams buzzer beater that he called his shot um but no atlanta carolina it is hard to open the season with a better rivalry matchup than that especially with both those teams really uh taking a, a huge step up after last season or during last season So I'm excited for both of them.
0: Quick aside, and I know you probably rewatched it recently as well when you did your article on the Hustle Zone defense. Um, But that week one, 2021 matchup, Brett Halsmeyer went crazy in that game. So good. (laughs) You you talk about the, the Flyers who went on to win the championship only being held the four goals in the first half and having, again, the second most efficient offense ever. We just talked earlier in the show about Chicago having the most efficient offense ever in 2021. Uh, The Flyers were second and they were about a a rounding error away from (laughs) eclipsing the union and having the best offense ever. They were nominally like the one, a best offense ever. And they got held to four goals and it was largely because of Halsmeyer just blitzing from that deep, deep position. I think he finished with three blocks on the game. Uh, four four four. and he had a couple in the first half where he was he was almost like finger wagging and it was just (laughs) I remember watching the film of that game and watching it live and kind of being like who is this like I know he's played before but I hadn't seen him play like that and to just sort of have that game against the Flyers against such like an otherwise pristine offense and just be able to gum things up for them and kind of present problems. I mean, at the end of that game, he was guarding Eric Taylor in matchup, you know, like he's a six yeah. foot six guy guarding one of the best handlers and one of the squirrelier offensive guards uh, and doing so admirably. Like I, I, I recently went back and watched that matchup and it was just like eye opening how, impactful Hallsmeyer was in that game and then obviously throughout the rest of their season um I'm just yeah really looking forward to that matchup again yeah me too it was it was a tone setter and then
1: their second meeting of the season too was an incredibly good game when Atlanta had that uh what was it four or five goal lead in the third quarter like halfway through and then Raleigh just went on a 9-2 run. I got to keep fact-checking myself. 9-2 or 10-2 run to close out the game. They they made some personnel changes with Eric Taylor and Elijah Long, switching them over. And, I you know, it, it feels like we're, we're now in the era where every Atlanta-Raleigh game is going to be amazing. Sorry, Atlanta-Carolina. Ooh, we'll keep correcting ourselves there. So, I I, again, a great way to open the season. I couldn't be more excited.
0: And then after that, on the West Coast, also on Friday, April 29th, we get the first look at the expansion team Salt Lake Shred against the two-time reigning divisional champion San Diego Growlers. And we were talking about this off-air yesterday. That's going to be a fun one. Like, that's just too totally different franchises a totally different kind of stations different sort of feels as far as the ultimate communities san diego has this kind of winning culture now in the audl salt lake and the whole sort of utah ultimate scene is looking to sort of stake itself on a larger national level mm-hmm. it It'll be a first time for a lot of Salt Lake players in offense versus a very established growlers defense that's going to want to take stuff away. We were kind of talking about and we'll probably get into it closer to the season, but it'll be really interesting to see if Salt Lake can kind of open it up into a running gun and maybe use some of their youth and athleticism to their advantage a little bit. Or if the growlers are just going to be able to dictate from the opening poll.
1: Yeah. I mean, we'll we'll see how much this claim holds up, but I I really can see any of the three expansion teams or all of them playing San Diego really well. I could see the three expansion teams basically
0: slotting in are you, right behind San Diego in the pecking order of the West. Are you saying that they will do that in week 1 though? Are you saying that <laughs> I don't do I don't know. in week 1 cuz that's I, you're, I really like the pieces that Salt Lake has added. I love that they have Bryce Merrill as their head coach. He's one of the more established uh, like amateur level and youth level uh, developers and tacticians. But they're going up against uh, Helton and Stewart, who, again, just kind of have like hardware in their disposal and are already established at the pro level and will be looking to sort of dampen the hopes of the expansion shred. In their yeah. first ever pro game, right? Like, I'm not. Yeah. I, it's. I'm not gonna it, take it, the
1: shred to win, but I,
0: I like. I don't know. They're
1: they're one of the more intriguing expansion teams to are. me because of this this you know investment they've made in young AUDL player, like former AUDL players, and also people in the Salt Lake community. But yeah, just like getting these these uh, 2021 rookies that they they're sort of building around. Um, I I like. I don't know. I, I like the prospects of, of their ability to have like a a
0: fast paced, high powered run and gun approach to things. And there's just like there's kind of this expectation, I think, for San Diego, too, where if it is close, it'll be like, what's you know, what's sort of wrong with us? <laughs> like we we were playing yeah, a yeah, of goal yeah. for goal in the second half with New York at Championship Weekend the last time we were out. And now we're right. trading with an expansion team. Uh, I mean, San Diego does kind of play down to teams level sometimes. A little, bit. Like they, a little
1: bit. They struggle with Seattle. They've struggled with, you know, Austin,
0: San Jose. But we um, were, they went under a huge roster turnover from 2019 to 2021, or at least a lot of kind of tweaking and additions. And, yeah, Curdy you know, yeah. wasn't there. He was a featured part of their 2019 defense. And then he's not there. They add in shachner and khalif and hunter corbett comes back on like they were there were a lot of sort of roster pieces to manage in 2021 that i really think was undersold given that they finished a regular season with 10 wins and went back to championship weekend like i thought the coaching staff deserved more credit for how they managed all that and i kind of expect there to be a little bit more Refinements in 2021 like they just yeah you watch the growlers play like they play well like they play right like you watch them in red zone situations for the past two years they're top five and you see it on the film and just whenever you watch them play like they just know how to convert when they get good possessions and mm-hmm. i don't know i just i don't feel like that's necessarily like I don't feel like the margins that they were winning by in twenty twenty one is indicative. But again, like we were just talking about they had a bunch of close wins in twenty nineteen too. So I don't <laughs> Right. Maybe, maybe right. they are just really good in clutch games. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Which is, you know, that's something to They're hang your to head on for sure. Yeah. You gotta be able to close out games if you're a good team. So I don't know. But I mean that's it's a good point. Like their their roster was uh jumbled a lot from twenty nineteen to twenty twenty one and hopefully they're coming into the season with a bit more consistency and yeah just all those guys having another year in the system is going to be helpful and they also have Sean McDougal now so <laughs> that'll be
0: nice yeah that's a huge addition and I feel like that's yeah. one of those pieces where opening night against a Salt Lake team that's kind of getting together on defense for the first time and they got to figure out Dunn and McDougal immediately like that's <laughs> that's a lot yeah that's a lot to add. I know. On paper, <laughs> the the
1: team is just ridiculous. So, I mean, I realistically I will not pick Salt Lake to beat San Diego in week 1, but I don't know. I I just want a competitive game and I, I'm excited just to get a first look at Salt Lake. I think all these expansion teams, we just want to see what they're all about and how quickly we can sort of, you know, sort out the the pecking order in the West because it feels so up in the air right now besides San Diego at the top.
0: Hey, you know, nothing would make me happier than what happened in week two of last year where Austin immediately like laser (laughs) orbit my power rankings, which had Dallas at number one and Austin at 21. Like if the same thing happens this year with like me putting Salt Lake somewhere below like 12 and San Diego at four and then Mm -hmm. Growlers lose an opening night to an expansion team like... I i would shake i would just nod my head to that like that would be fine whatever i embrace the chaos at this point
1: yeah exactly and i do feel like the west west division could be the spot for that to happen as it was last year
0: (laughs) and we'll get we'll get to that uh we keep kind of going down this rabbit hole of the opening night because it's just immediately juicy matchups right in week one right away uh but kind of Telescoping back a second, just talking about the general schedule and Championship Weekend 11, which will be hosted in Madison, Wisconsin, the third time a Championship Weekend event is being hosted in Madison, uh, the first time since 2018, when the host team, Madison Radicals, won the title. Um, This year, it'll be on Friday and Saturday, August 26th and 27th. Tickets are in sale right now. I'm stoked because I live here and I get to help kind of put on part of this event. And it's been some of my favorite Frisbee memories to have hosted the prior two events in 2016 and 2018. Uh, but I want to open it up to you. How excited are you to have an event in Madison this year?
1: Yeah, I, I think it'll be great. I mean, I, I think it's it's pretty unanimous that the Madison Championship Weekends have been the most successful in AUDL history, maybe also the Montreal. shout out Montreal. In 2017. Montreal was yeah, a yeah. lot of fun. Montreal gets a shout out. Um, yeah, I, I've heard great things about the city. Again, I did not go to that one, nor did I go to the Madison ones. But yeah, I mean Madison. Historically, they they know how to put on a show. Obviously, the Radicals games are, are not like I I don't know I don't know how you compare Radicals games to any other team in the league. Like they have their own energy. Just the the level of real fandom that is there in an ultimate setting is really cool to see and yeah madison just they love their ultimate and so i'm excited to share that with them
0: if i go if i'm allowed to attend i just think the energy that the kinds of fans and the amount of fans that show up at championship weekend in madison is really going to add another level to the play and everything at championship weekend you can kind of see the elevation even from 2016 to 2018 Obviously, 2016 mm-hmm. having maybe the greatest game ever in that Seattle Madison semifinal, which I don't think anyone who has even watched it since can kind of shut up about. Um, yeah. Obviously, I was watching it from the press booth in midfield, and it's burned deep somewhere into a lobe in my brain. Uh, just like emotionally, <laughs> as, as it should be. Yeah, yeah. No, that was a that was a core memory for me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's a core sure. memory for me, and I've only ever watched it on video. I wasn't there. But, but, yeah, you know, the hope is to always kind of recapture the magic of that night. And I definitely think that with the way that this season is setting up and sort of the, the, the teams that could possibly attend a 2022 championship weekend, like in New York and Carolina and San Diego and either Chicago or Minnesota, I just think Madison and the stage it sets is really going to create Maybe the best championship weekend ever? Maybe. Let's hope so.
1: It's also nice. Madison is centrally located in the country. It makes a lot of sense, a lot more sense for people from the coast to travel to it from other divisions. So I I'm optimistic and just excited to to witness it. But so, I think we we gotta get to the, the main question. I was here. gonna say we if gotta I, roll up our second segue. Today. I know. I know. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna ask you. So madison the madison radicals have been at the past two championship weekends they've hosted but they've now missed each of the last two audl championship weekends hosted in san jose and then dc last season it feels like a new era for them as they're sort of transitioning past their prime potentially you know obviously they they peaked in 2018 when they won the title how are you feeling about their chances of actually playing in this championship
0: weekend again in Madison? So not only have they missed championship weekend, each of the past two seasons, it's been the playoffs entirely. So (laughs) true. You you know, I I, it's gotten to the point where I think if you miss the playoffs back to back years, you're kind of reset to a point where you have to prove you can win in the postseason. That's not the same team that won the championship in 2018 in any form. Regardless of there being a couple carryovers, shout out to KPS and Meshnick, and potentially a couple returners coming back from that team. But it, you know, like this is a new era for the Radicals, as we've seen these past couple seasons. They they don't have, you know, the the Andrew Brown, Pat Shrywise, Colin Camp, Peter Graffy offense anymore. It's it's Victor Luo and hopefully the return from injury Kevin Brown, uh, and and sort of a lot of new young faces sort of looking to make more permanent roles on that O-line. And I think until you see a return to form of them converting at an elite level on offense and kind of catching up to what their D-line break percentages are, you can't really talk about them as even a playoff team, right? Like, they got to kind of prove that in the Central Division again. I, I really feel like for right now, Chicago and Minnesota have effectively leapfrogged them. You know, uh, yeah. Madison was what one in five against those two teams last year. Yes, their yes. lone at win coming so in week are. six at home against Chicago.
1: Yeah, yeah, they didn't beat Minnesota at all.
0: So you know, it's it's I, I a think, tall order. I think I I think that they need to show that they can, in some fashion, reclaim that sort of honor that they had for all those years at home show that breeze is their territory. You know, the winning streak was snapped unceremoniously by Minnesota uh, in 2019 and Chicago as well. Also got a win at breeze and they both got wins there last year as well. You know, it, it it's on the radicals. I think at this point to take back up their, their sort of prestige. And I think that they need to show that they can do that. It's not, it's not a question of, you know, are they going to defend the title? It's can they get back to the playoffs and can they kind of like make that that still stellar defense more, more of a, you know, a problem in the playoffs. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know that there's any easy solution here. I don't know that there's a clear path right now to them, you know, effectively not ending up in an, in a road opening round playoff game. Uh, as the three seed like I I think that they're gonna have to really work to get there especially with the schedule and them having to play a very good Austin team at home right yeah yeah it's it's not gonna be easy for them I mean I
1: I just look back to their offense like obviously they're they're such a defensive identity team as they've been since 2013 um, I pulled this stat they're the only team to have always had a break percentage of thirty three point three percent or higher every season, meaning they convert a break one out of every three D points at least. Uh, obviously, that that is their bread and butter, butter, and that doesn't seem to be going anywhere, which is the good news for them. They've lost all these pieces from their twenty eighteen run. Their defense is, you know, arguably just as dominant as it has ever been. But you look at their offense and their efficiency is just way down. And while they have had this defensive identity, they they did have an identity as an offense. And I feel like they have not had an identity as an offense over the last two seasons. I mean, like back in the day with the Brown brothers, as you mentioned, and Colin Camp and Dave Wiseman, Ben Nelson even. Shout out to Ben Nelson for uh, putting together all of these stats that we're referencing. Uh, you know, they they like had a very well-oiled machine at times. And I think you saw it peak in 2018, Peter Graffy too, like you mentioned. Um, But yeah, I think they're just like, they're looking for a new, a new system, new pieces to really shine above others. They kind of just have a lot of like good players and not so many stars. So it's, it feels like they just need to develop a little further and and really like key in on what their offense is going to look like and what's going to work well for them. Cause it's just been too average the last two seasons. And yeah, I just don't think it's I don't I don't really know what needs to happen for it to pass Minnesota or Chicago's
0: offense well, this year. Like I kind of just don't see that happening. One rumor is that Kevin Pettit Scantling will be playing more of a 50-50 role on offense and defense and potentially and run more offensive sets. But I don't be interesting. I don't know that. Taking your star, all AUDL caliber defender, and putting him on offense—I don't know that that necessarily solves all their problems. Because what? No. Because what makes KPS so valuable to them is that he takes away—he's a chess piece of like a queen order on defense, and he takes yeah. away the other, t- the opposing offense's best player essentially, you know, and forces you to kind of like work through a B route or something. Um, you can't go directly through the person KPS is guarding. Fun fact. Uh, <laughs> but Breaking if you remove them from that D-line, you kind of scatter the rest of the matchups in a way where obviously Sterling Kanaki can handle that, but like the the fierceness of that Madison defense is sort of the two-pronged thing of, well, they put, throw KPS on your best offensive player, then you have Sterling on their second best, and then from there they can just sort of pick and choose... You know, advantageous matchups depending on their lineups, and and with when you remove KPS, you just I don't know you take like a win condition away from that D line that sort of always relies on that as a way to enforce and dictate play when it's out there. Like that is the Madison Radical strategy, as we talked about last week when we were talking about stats. They forced a seasons plus worth more throws than any team historically. You know, like they make you work, and so. Kind of rounding out my point, I don't, I don't know if like taking your best player from the unit that makes offenses works, makes offenses work. Like if that's a solution, right? Like I, if it feels yeah, like yeah, well, I mean, figure to pay Paul a little bit.
1: The the hope I have for them is is I think their defensive system is just incredibly sound, even if they're not running zone as much as they have in years past, like the amount of of switches and just overall team defense that's sort of built into their identity as a whole i feel like that just that that's a lot of what has made them such a good defense despite some changing pieces like obviously kps has been a constant and is the leader of that team and the defense especially but you know the the hope i would have if you move him over is that the defense does just seem to be this very sound audl defense um, where you're not so much leaning on what, like obviously kps is a much better he's your ideal help slash poach defender at all times but that is i think that's something that tim teaches really well and i think their their players all kind of get that team mentality of playing defense in the udl so I, i'd be hopeful that their defense could could maintain its efficiency even with moving kps over but it's definitely a tough decision i, I feel like the the optimal thing might just be to play on them sort of a 50 50 split like you mentioned
0: yeah and you know I, i think with madison the bigger question becomes as they look to possibly make it back to championship weekend and defend a home title uh is like can the system become efficient enough to sort of overcome the talent inequities that they face when in comparison to like a chicago or minnesota roster like yeah, when you shift over a KPS, you simply lose something when you're going up against again like Barker and Arters. Like you need <laughs> right, a KPS right. to solve one of those pieces. Yeah,
1: well, and the game the game they won against Chicago, like KPS was on Pavel a lot of that game, and right. that's a big reason why Pavel was sort of off um, from start to finish. So, but then yeah, in, it's, in the week it's nine, a decision they'll have for... to make.
0: In the week nine win for yep. Chicago again at Madison, they tried other defenders on Barker and it did not work out well. Barker <laughs> no, kind of had not. his way deep.
1: Yeah. Although even that game, like Madison did play Chicago pretty well. I mean, they they, do. They, they, they took always a, do. They took a lead late in the third quarter of that game. It was just, it was the Peter Graffy show for Chicago to start the fourth and that was it. But yeah, I don't know. I like, I, Obviously, Madison showed the ability to, like, it's not like Chicago and Minnesota are blowing them out, most games at least. Um, so Madison should be right up there with them, but it's, it, feel, it still feels like Chicago and Minnesota are just at that next level where Madison is still trying to get back there.
0: Is Chicago and Minnesota formally a rivalry at this point? after the playoff game <laughs> yeah, we we it feels, talked about it. like it feels uh, like one of those things where they've played each other for years but there's never really been much of a rivalry other than we're from illinois and we're from minnesota and we don't like the reverse because <laughs> it like, just they dumb, haven't really like, both Midwest been
1: aggro yeah nonsense. well they haven't both like, been very good at the same time right right like, when was the last time both those teams were good i think it was just last year really
0: I mean, back in the day, it was, you know, in 2014, 2013, kind of the founding years of the true now central division. Okay. Like, they Spare were kind of time. like interchanging for the second, third playoff spots. But yeah. I, again, like, it's just, there's never really felt like traction. And now, after that playoff game where Chicago again ran like a bank robber leaving, you know, US National or something. Uh, a, out of the stadium with that game on a 5-0 run after minnesota had led throughout the entire game uh it feels like there's a little bit more at stake like a little bit more skin in the game heading into 2022 especially with minnesota kind of adding all these big names to their roster and sort of i think imagining themselves as the better team than chicago Right. Like Mm -hmm. you play for three and a half quarters as well as Minnesota did and you let a game slip away. It's hard not to say, hey, we had them if we don't just kind of focus a little bit more. And you, you know, if you're Minnesota, you watch how well Chicago plays against the eventual champion Flyers like Minnesota has a lot, I think, to their credit of saying, hey, we can play with anybody
1: and yeah, And I, the flip side I, of that is
0: Chicago pushed, you know, the eventual champion flyers to within one goal late in a game in the semifinals, and they return basically their entire roster from that run, and they can say, "Hey, we can play with anybody. yeah, i I don't
1: know. I feel like rivalries to be rivalries because there's so much history in the Central Division, or formerly known as the Midwest Division of Madison being on top. It was like Madison always had the target on their back. So I feel like that that sort of facilitated the most rivalries in that division, like the Madison-Minnesota or Madison-Chicago. The Chicago-Minnesota, I just think it, it needs like another season to grow a little bit. The seeds have been planted uh, in 2021. And this This should be another season where they're just constantly going back and forth for that top spot in the division. So I, I expect the rivalry to continue to grow, but do I call it a, a real rivalry at this point? I think I need another season.
0: Ask me again it after it, 2022. What would make it a real rivalry? Does it need to be like one goal game? More
1: history. <laughs> I need more history. I, need more history. I just need more time. I need more time of them being at the top of the division uh, going at it. Like definitely we got that last year, but for that to have really been the first year where that was the case,
0: I, I'm just I'm greedy. I want more. Need more of it. Twenty nineteen, they had a few close games. They had that great uh, week nine game of the week where it was you know like Quinn Snyder That's versus true. Matt Raider Golathon. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. That was uh, a fun
0: one. I don't know. I I feel like it's there, but I, you know, kind of moving from the central, I think, to our more main slate in kind of talking about rivalries, uh, moving to the east and sort of I think the the now most traditionally historic and alignment division. Uh, and, and at the forefront of that New York DC, uh, which is also going to be a week one matchup we get in 2022. Uh, I tweeted about it. They, they've played 16 times since the beginning of 2016, uh, of those 16 games, 14 of them have been four goals or fewer, uh, decision at the end. Uh, many of those even being in overtime and one goal games, uh, It feels like New York right now has the advantage, but again, going back to that 16-game sample size, DC actually has a 10-6 advantage and is outscoring the Empire over that stretch by a fairly significant margin of like 28 goals or so. I'd have to go back and look at the tweet Mm. specifically. Um, What do you expect about New York-DC going into 2022? Obviously, Empire adding Antoine Davis to a lineup that already was in the championship game in 2021 but dc now also adding good pieces to a team that really felt like it could have played with anybody in 2021 they're they're so close like just in terms
1: of ranking teams in the east even with the antoine davis edition of new york like sure on paper new york has more star power but with how well dc played and the added names they're getting this off season like I mean, realistically, I think it's pretty likely that they just split games one and one, right? I think they both play each other twice this season. Um, so that that feels like the most likely outcome to me, even though Empire, more star power on paper, uh, maybe just more top-level talent as a whole. But DC, I mean, I they were so close last year (laughs) like that, that game against Raleigh that they beat them late in the season, only to then lose to them in the playoffs. Like we saw DC pull off these really tough wins and then also have wins like they did against Boston where they just absolutely went off. Like we mentioned before on this episode, like they they're not a team to be messed with. And I feel like their depth is a really interesting Uh, counter to new york which feels very top heavy um so i don't know i i also think both teams are pretty well coached like daryl stanley has really created this new identity for this dc team over the last year really um and just seeing like the the youth on dc continuing to develop in the breeze system it feels like they're gonna be good for longer than new york is going to be good at this point but i just wow. don't know if this is the year for them to overtake them how do you disagree
0: the- with that i mean ben yacht and jeff babbitt and jack williams and ryan osgar are still thoroughly in their primes like what kind of window are you talking about
1: eh, like five, five years, years from years? now yeah, yeah yeah five years from now like, I, I don't know. I think D.C. is really well set up for the future. I, I don't th- I think New York is oh, like
0: five plenty, years plenty set up for the immediate future. Out. Five years. And yeah, yeah. further yeah. out. You still got that. Like, yes. Half decade cushion. Well. Of- <laughs> well, right. It's about it's about
1: having these guys. The New York guys. Yes, they're in their prime. And yeah, they'll probably maybe start declining in five years. But D.C. really. I, I mean, Rowan is probably their only like older guy at this point. He's got a few more years. But the difference is when I think Rowan starts declining, they have so many guys that are, you know, just in their early 20s or like 20 now that are just going to come up and sort of fill those star roles
0: that DC is going to need. So assuming they
1: stick around, which hopefully they do.
0: Yeah, I, you know, the New York DC rivalry, I kind of think is being maybe the premier rivalry in the league um especially the this, year, this year
1: this year will be
0: because I mean, with, with York,
1: Carolina back to the south it feels like
0: that's the New York New York Carolina probably is the best given the three game sample size and one of those games yes. being you know the the one game that didn't finish in sudden death was a title game so that's <laughs> right. probably the best rivalry of all time right now but Right behind that, I feel like is New York DC. Like it just, you go back through the annals of this league and they have some of the best matchups historically year in, year out. And it just really feels like it's almost going to reach an even higher degree this year, given that DC, you know, again is 10 and 6 in the last 16 matchups, but it feels like they're behind New York just because New York Mm -hmm. has that firm hardware and a title and DC. Doesn't have a playoff win in that span, Um, or they have one. They they won one playoff game in 2017 against Montreal. Mm. But okay, but yeah, not right. The the playoff point is is
1: significant because yeah, in recent years, in 2016, sorry,
0: but since then it's been New York's game,
1: right? And even in in 2019, like I was I was decently confident that I mean DC was the only team that could consistently play New York close that season they arguably had a win taken away from them in that double overtime game where there was that controversial timeout call uh well i was like pretty confident if dc was in the playoffs that they would at least get to face new york but yeah they lost to toronto in the first round of that game and it was toronto that played new york for the the trip to championship weekend obviously new york came out on top but i you know this rivalry has been running deep for several years now and i feel like it should just continue building as as these teams rosters continue to build like i think both these teams are going to be better than they were last season
0: there's kind of a cold war going on with their roster builds it feels very like almost <laughs> yeah, like eight it's which is fun too like you're saying new york feels very top heavy where dc kind of keeps plugging holes everywhere with their announcements. yeah yeah but yeah know. it's it, fun it's a fun situation But then kind of moving on from that rivalry, just kind of hitting on three quick other ones in the East. We're really excited about the return of DC Toronto, which went away in 2021 with the Canadian teams being segregated to the Canadian cup due to COVID restrictions. Uh, But with Toronto moving back into the East, we get kind of a return of the, the traditional sort of one, two matchup in the East division in the playoffs historically Um, And one that Toronto had typically won every single time, including in 2019 when they matched up and Toronto won over the breeze in the first round of the playoffs, kind of in an upset. I think I was predicting DC to win. It felt like with the way Rowan was playing and just kind of how DC plays against New York, they were expecting to face off against New York in the East division title game. And instead, Toronto does what it kind of always does, which is win more than any other franchise ever, except for <laughs> Madison. Uh, except and for Madison, they, no. they just grind it out a W. And while I definitely think that DC is going to hold a significant on-paper matchup advantage going into 2022 with Toronto, you kind of can't discount the just ghosts that exist in this sort of dynamic where Toronto has held such a historic advantage against the breeze and i'm really excited to just kind of see how it plays out at least in the first matchup um maybe before the breeze kind of do what they did to boston in 2021 and uh take toronto out to the woodshed. because i could also see that happening like, breeze <laughs> i know i am very good and i'm a little leery of what toronto will look like in 2022
1: uh especially after last season like it, it was clear that toronto was sort of, you know, losing some of their more historic top players to retirement or just moving on from the team. And yeah, I mean, they they had a really interesting path last year, actually. Like it seemed like, you know, through the first four games or whatever of the Canadian Cup, I think they started 0-4, maybe 1-5 or something like that. Uh, it was like, OK, well, Toronto's done. I guess Ottawa is the, the second best team in Canada now. But then they just sort of like clawed back and, and they really weren't getting blown out in any games. Like they were definitely hanging with all the teams they faced. Sorry, both of the teams they faced.
0: They, they were, um, all, the finale was a one goal game.
1: Right. All the way up through the championship. So like, you know, I think it's easy to look at Toronto. I think they what finished three and six technically. last season something like that so it's easy to look at that and be like this is not the Toronto we remember but I don't know I still feel like from like an organizational culture standpoint like they're not just gonna roll over and and totally right uh, just turn into this bottom of division team like I I think they'll still have some like I I don't know if I don't know if they'll upset DC or, or any of the top three teams in that division but I, I don't know i think they're gonna they're gonna be around um, and they're gonna put up some fights for sure
0: and then in addition to that two new york rivalries that we're also excited about uh new york montreal which again kind of returns after a year off and is a little bit more of an undercard rivalry but montreal in 2018 and uh yeah 2018 kind of took a version of the existing empire to the woodshed in a home game in Montreal. And just because of how the Royale play at home and sort of the mystique that they get with that kind of raucous home crowd, it feels like a road trip to Montreal could potentially be a trap game for New York. Yeah, Montreal is just like a an energy team every year, it feels like. And just, I, I know I... they have that kind of silly belief. And I think especially after winning in the Canada Cup where it's like, hey, we're the Canadian champions and we're coming into the fold and we think we can beat, you know, this sort of uh, US champion in the New York <laughs> Empire. Like, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. to see them kind of puff out their chests and kind of take it as a statement game for the Royale as a franchise.
1: Yeah, and that's another another deep roster as opposed to New York's top-heavy roster. Obviously, like New York does have some depth too, but I think Montreal's depth that they showed on offense and defense last season, like they they felt like the most complete Canadian team. And yeah, I'm just excited to see how they match up with the U.S. teams. It's been long enough since we saw a Canadian U.S. matchup. Um, back to the, the rivalry, though, like you mentioned, the undercard matchup. It is very similar to the the Austin Atlanta rivalry that we mentioned before like underratedly very good games historically um and yeah that that 2018 game it it felt like every time Montreal and New York played you know from I don't know those those middle uh teen years of the 2000s uh it, it felt like either of those could go anyway at any given season so I, I still expect New York to come out on top more often than not, but I agree with you. It could be could be a, a bit of a trap game going to Montreal for sure.
0: I, I'm not saying that it, you know, it's kind of like you were hedging earlier with Salt Lake versus St. New York. I'm not saying <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that I expect Montreal to win against New York. I'm saying that like you're saying, they've they play up against New York. The Royals very do. much think yeah. of the Empire as being a team that they can knock off. And while they don't historically have The record to support that it's going to be interesting if they do finally land a killing blow on new york and get like a big win during sort of new york's uh potential dynasty run here um yeah and maybe they just they have a little bit of swag coming into the season with their their royal crowns from canada and just throw that in there it's only had a season to sort of ferment but the one that should really be watched i think going into this year is new york boston Uh, Again, they played in a really close game at the end of 2021. It was kind of meaningless, except for New York was fighting for a home playoff game. They ended up winning Mm -hmm. by a single goal at Boston, but Boston, again, being an expansion team, it feels like they're going to have, you know, kind of a firmer ground underneath of them going into their second season in 2022, potentially a playoff team, and New York-Boston, in almost any sport, it delivers as a rivalry. So I just kind of expect that to maturate into something to watch in 2022. Yeah, agreed. And yeah, with with what Boston showed
1: last year and the trajectory it feels like they'll be on um yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they're a top 2 or 3 team. Maybe not top 2 this year, but top 3 team in the division.
0: And then we kind of hit we're moving into the South division now talking about rivalries in the schedule. We kind of hit on Carolina Atlanta already being the first taste we get of the 2022 season and how great that's going to be. But with the South kind of reforming in it into its traditional structure, we also get the return of roughneck or sorry, not the roughnecks, the Dallas Legion and the Carolina Flyers, what used to be the Raleigh Flyers versus the Dallas roughnecks. Uh, traditionally the South division championship game for three straight seasons between 2017 and 2019 uh that went away in 2021 with the dallas franchise moving into the west division but now with them returning to the south along with carolina in 2022 we get kind of a a weirdo version of the dallas carolina rivalry where flyers are coming (laughs) off of a championship dallas is kind of seemingly at a franchise low point but it again as we kind of keep discrediting them there's way too much winning and just sort of pride still present on this (laughs) legion roster for them to be totally discredited and that dallas road trip is always a doozy playing at dallas is never an easy task it it just feels like they're still going to go into a matchup with the flyers regardless of the Flyers' recent hardware dallas is going to expect that they can win
1: yeah you're right. I but it still feels like such a different rivalry at this point. Totally. I guess to me to me it's mostly about like the unfinished business for the flyers of finally like putting putting this rivalry to rest sort of and, and like really being like, okay, you know you beat us three straight South division championships now like you don't stand a chance against us. So I feel like for the flyers, you know they, they're still gonna there's still a lot of heat to this rivalry because it was such a sudden shift from Dallas going to the West division, like all of a sudden leaving that, that rivalry and history behind. But it, it I know it, it just feels like these teams are on two completely different levels, but yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm falling back into the discrediting Dallas thing, which we, I got to try harder not to do because uh, they're still Dallas. i still think they could be They've a made- 500 or better team easily.
0: They've made the playoffs every year of their existence. They've never lost more than four games in the regular season. I don't know why we do this to them. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like it's just prove us wrong. Not fair. Right. Like, you know, like they've earned it at this point. I don't know why we keep doing this leapfrog stuff, but it does kind of highlight our next rivalry talking point, which was Dallas versus Austin, which again kind of gets enshrined now that the South only has two playoff bids and there's Carolina and Atlanta in this division now as well. These Dallas Austin games are going to really matter once again for determining if either of them can even get close to a playoff bid now in 2022. Yeah. And as much as we're talking up Austin, like I, you know, we're just,
1: we're falling victim to just hyping the teams that are on a trajectory that we like. And, and obviously (laughs) Dallas is on the other trajectory, but the Austin Dallas games, like I could easily see them splitting games again this season just like they did last season, like where it feels like Austin might be more talented than, than them now. I feel like those Dallas or Texas games wherever they're playing just are total toss ups. Like I, I have no idea who I would predict to win any any given matchup between those teams. I mean, maybe I favor the home team, but obviously like it's Texas and they're not that far apart so these fans do travel um and so yeah i'm i'm excited to get more of it and I, I just like that that there's now a lot of intrigue in texas whereas before last season it was just a given that dallas was going to win all of those games it's very different landscape now but yeah i, I by no means think austin is just going to like run dallas over in all of these matchups
0: Dallas holds such a historic lead too. I mean, you talk about them splitting last <laughs> yeah. year. That you know when they when Austin won in Week Two, that was only the second time ever they had beaten Dallas since 2016. In roughly you know 20 odd matchups, uh, it it is still a very recent history for the Soul to even be kind of on this you know seeing eye level with the Dallas franchise. And so, I I kind of expect Dallas to kind of like rekindle a little bit of that pride, especially with. Emmons taking over now at the helm and Wes Nemec being brought into the fold back into the fold it, it feels like Dallas is maybe getting cornered a bit and having to dig in their heels and they're one of those teams who responds really really well to situations like that as they showed in 2021 with kind of the the roster inconsistencies that they had on a week to week basis and still clawing out named for a record and making it to the playoffs right like for sure. what's
1: interesting i'm I'm looking at the schedule now uh dallas and austin play each other five times this season right three of those games are in dallas or sorry no three of them are in austin so austin technically has a home field advantage i feel like a three and two split just seems so likely to me like it's hard to imagine straight down either of these teams winning chalk i feel like i I mean well one yeah i don't i don't know yeah, I don't know if one I think, game, yeah, one, yeah, I could see that. I don't know for sure if Austin is just going to win all the home games and lose all the road games, but I do feel like a three and two split uh, in favor of Austin seems like that would be my prediction at this
0: point. And then we hinted at it earlier, but Austin, Atlanta, it's never really had an impactful rivalry sense, but they've really played each other to the tilt since uh, Austin came into the division in 2016 Uh, and that went away obviously in 2021 with Austin going to the West and Atlanta playing in the Atlantic division but now they come back and both teams have very specific playoff aspirations I think for the first time for both of these franchises you know Atlanta Mm -hmm. had a bit of a playoff uh, absence you know they had only qualified one time before 2021 in 2016 when austin first joined the south division um but there wasn't ever really a sense that austin and atlanta were like competing for playoff spots i felt like they might have been at certain times but it just it didn't really feel that way at the league narrative level and now all of a sudden it really feels like these atlanta austin matchups are going to matter And these are traditionally games that go down to one or two goals, even in like 2019 when both teams were far, far away from a playoff berth.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, what did I'm looking at the, just the history of these two teams records season by season, they follow the same trajectory. It's like these teams are rising and falling with not falling, but they, they were sort of down at the bottom and they, they have risen together. So like in 2016, Atlanta was seven and seven. Austin was seven and seven. Twenty seventeen, Atlanta was five and nine. Austin was four and ten. Twenty eighteen, again, both teams were seven and seven. Twenty nineteen, Atlanta was five and seven. Austin was three and nine. So like they're they're really on the same trajectory at all times, which makes sense that all these games are really competitive and really good. And now they're they're seeming to sort of peak at the right time at the same time. So I I love the the underrated Austin Atlanta rivalry. It's the first, I, actually it's I, the only two a city names in the AUDL. I believe they're at least the the first two alphabetically. Um, so they're always right next to each other, but yeah, I just, I love the path they're following and, and continuing to follow through this peak that we're seeing.
0: That was the most designer nugget possible. That was the most like I file, <laughs> stuff away alphabetically on a hard drive somewhere like i know i'm just thinking of like whenever i have logos
1: (laughs) like laid out yep austin atlanta or atlanta then austin yep i was gonna
0: say i think it's gonna be a really interesting matchup stylistically you're talking about like the atlanta zone defense versus uh austin offense that likes to get out and run and we'll probably want to do that even more so with the additions of Henke and Pollock back into their O line rotations. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see the rekindling of this matchup with, again, like a tremendous amount of playoff stake on the line. Um, right. And kind of moving on from the South into the West, finally, uh, to be quite frank, <laughs> with the additions of the three expansion teams in Portland, Salt Lake, and Colorado and San Diego sort of perch as the two-time reigning champions, there, there's sort of this amoebus cloud right now in the West where there, there are sort of more traditional rivalries. There's the the interstate rivalry between San Diego and Los Angeles. You could say that San Jose and Seattle get a little frisky with each other from time to time, particularly if they're matched up in the opening weeks of the season. Obviously, San Diego kind of has their their close finishes with everyone in the division, but frankly with their win totals the past couple of seasons, it feels like they're in echelon above right now. There's just not really a sense of who's going to really dig in against an opponent out West this year. And that sort of really excites us, right, Daniel? Like <laughs> yeah. I'm really excited to see do salt like in Colorado and potentially Portland just cross the tack with some team really quickly. Like just don't like them when they get out there. Yeah. Or with each other, you know, like I
1: I think Colorado and Salt Lake have potential just geographically, you know, they're kind of off the coast. Um, But yeah, who knows with this West division? I love it. It's just like a total mystery at this point. It's why I'm so excited to see Salt Lake and San Diego play that first uh, night of games. I I don't think it's going to be like so telling as far as, you know, how either team is going to play the whole season. But just getting these guys in action and and seeing them on the field, I think will we'll probably realize maybe by about halfway through the season how these rivalries are starting to shake out. But yeah, I mean I feel like the strongest rivalry maybe before last season was the LA San Diego one and you know, that's that was like a big historic one similar to the Dallas Carolina, but at this point like San Diego's just kind of put that one to rest. Like I just don't think LA is really close enough to San Diego. Sure they did steal a win from them last season, they could easily do it again this season and They're always going to be competitive games, I feel like, but at this point, it's just like San Diego is definitely at the top of this division. I'm I'm just curious to see which of the three new teams can challenge them the best.
0: Well, and what makes it really interesting, and we kind of hit on this with Madison, is that with San Diego putting themselves kind of in a position above the rest of the fray, they now make themselves an easier target, and that kind of helps develop some of the rivalries down the road. And if Colorado does pick off san diego at some point boy oh boy is that going to really intensify those matchups later in <laughs> the
1: that'll be fun yeah i i'm really just i'm thinking about like what playoff matchups i could see as most likely and i just have no idea but i'm hoping a rivalry you know develops during the season and then those teams meet again in the playoffs um, maybe san diego and colorado will be them